Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, From Crisis to Connection. Each week on this podcast, my guests and I will give you and your loved ones resources and tools to heal from the crises of infidelity, pornography, abusive behaviors, and betrayal trauma. But we also talk about how to build and maintain healthy connection in your most important relationships. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you're here. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be with you every single week. And even though I can't see you, know that I see you. I recognize that you're out there, you have names and you have lives and questions and every one of you is different. And I hope that what I share on this podcast and these great interviews with these fantastic guests are helping you improve your life, improve your relationships. Thanks for being a part of this. Today, we're gonna talk about mindfulness. And this isn't going to be your average mindfulness discussion. In fact, my guest, Jacob Hess, was concerned that this would turn into another mindfulness sermon, as he put it. And so I'm just really excited to share with you his take on it. Jacob is a mindfulness, let's see, what is it called? A mindfulness-based stress reduction instructor. He's helped create mindfulness-based classes with like MindWeather 101, Lift, Fortify, the Council for Sustainable Healing. He's also authored 14 peer-reviewed articles and four books. And his most recent is called The Power of Stillness, Mindful Living for Latter-day Saints. And we do talk on this podcast about how to deepen your relationship with God using mindfulness. He gets into that and it's just some great stuff. I love talking to Jacob. He's one of my favorite thinkers, always challenges me, always pushing me, always inviting me to look at things in a new and different way. And he's had a great impact on my own thinking, both personally and professionally, and I'm sure he will for you as well. And so we're going to jump into this discussion and talk about mindfulness, how to understand it better, but especially how to apply it in our lives as it comes to dealing with our mental health, with addiction, with betrayal trauma, with faith issues. There's just so much that we can learn from and benefit from as we really dig into and understand what mindfulness is really about and how it can help us in our lives and help us in our relationships. Okay, let's jump right into my interview with Jacob Hess. Well, welcome to the podcast, Jacob. Thanks so much for making time for us today. Thanks for inviting me on. Today, we're gonna talk about mindfulness. And before we started, you said you had some thoughts about it. And I'd love to just start there about whether it's a definition or just some introductory thoughts on really what this means to you and, and how you've been thinking about it lately. What can you share with us? Every couple of years, there's a new word that comes around that everybody says is the answer, you know, like empowerment. 10 years ago, everybody was talking about empowerment, (laughs) dialogue. We all just need a dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) It ends up meaning so many different things and feeling like a panacea. I think mindfulness has come to feel that way a little bit. Like, what's your problem? Mindfulness is the answer. Of course, CBD is now the answer to everything. Right? <laughs> CBD oil. 
So I wanted to speak to those who might hear the word mindfulness and be like, oh, another mindfulness sermon and say, I'm with you in that. And uh, particularly to believers, I'm not a mindfulness missionary. I don't believe mindfulness is salvation, but I think it can help us get into a place where we can find more redemption. But the qualification I want to make, and I hope it's okay to just do this up front. Yeah. I have noticed that there is an Americanized version of mindfulness that is very different than the one I fell in love with that's more connected to the the deeper ancient roots. And the Americanized version goes something like this. Whoever you are, whatever you feel, whatever you think, whatever your circumstances, you are awesome. (laughs) You're great. And, And mindfulness is about accepting you exactly as you are, even if you've got a red personality or a temper or this or that, you know, like, and not feeling any shame. And I just wanted to identify that that to me and to many others in the tradition of contemplative practice is a departure from even what the Buddha taught. And certainly I think what Jesus taught. So one way to say it is there's a way to think about mindfulness that in my mind draws us closer to God and helps us become more like Christ. And there's a way to think about mindfulness, perhaps like many other things that could become a barrier to that. I say that because there's some well-earned skepticism among some where, you know, like we see people start to meditate and then decide, I don't need prayer because meditation is so great. And who needs the church now that I've got meditation? (laughs) And this this happens. Oh, yeah. So I think we do need to acknowledge up front, not behind the scenes, that mindfulness is not some cure-all that's always helpful no matter what. And depending on how it's approached, it can bring us closer to God or further. And I would say that about other relationships. It can actually lead somebody to feel distanced and judgmental towards others versus closer. I've seen people meditate and then start to feel mightier than others. Like, no, I'm, I'm the compassionate one. I'm the present one. And my ward is not, or my spouse is not. And again, that's opposite of what I have experienced mindfulness to be. So in our conversation today, I'd like that to be apparent as a lens to think about this. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think for myself, and I, I'm guessing for my listeners, I'd love to hear what you were, what you fell in love with. Can you close the loop here? And Yeah, yeah. I kind of got ahead of the... No, I want to, so, yeah, I want to hear sort of what, kind of what they intended with this or what, as, as it became a practice or became more of a... I guess, a formal practice or as it's being taught and passed down, like what was the intention? What were some of the purposes? And especially, you know, and then I definitely answer that, but I I would also like you then to kind of bring it full circle with what are, what would they say or what would, you know, this traditional mindfulness practice, what would they, what would be the concerns about what you're describing in light of, you know, where it came from? Okay, let's do that. So I was introduced at the University of Massachusetts, I attended a conference called Mindfulness-Based Approaches to Health Care, Healthcare, I think. And what stood out to me immediately is I walked into this room and these people were so calm. Like, and I'm a pretty calm guy. <laughs> like a lot of people, I've got my underlying worries and anxieties. And these people were like embodying calm. Wow. 
but they weren't coming from my faith tradition, right? They had bumper stickers that said, what would Buddha do? And enlighten up. I'm like, wow. Now, as a Latter-day Saint, I take pretty seriously the idea that my religion is truth, wherever it's to be found. And I, I've never felt qualms about like, I think this is a wonderful open invitation to receive goodness and truth wherever it comes from. And so I was just soaking it up and I fell in love with what I was hearing about this thing called mindfulness. So the, the two definitions that I like the most, one long, one short, a long one is paying attention in the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. And then John Kabat-Zinn sometimes adds, as if your life depends on it. Mm. Paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally, as if your life depends on it. Now that's, that's not just a skill. It's presented as a way of being, mm-hmm. like where you're paying attention to people and things and what you're going through in a particular way, in a, in a non-judgmental way, a non-harsh way, right? A curious way, kind of like Sherlock Holmes. The shorter definition is conscious, affectionate awareness of the moment. So notice it's not mm. just a cold clinical observation, like consciousness of the moment. It's affectionate too. It's like this tender relationship to the moment. So how is that different than the Americanized version I just raised? Right. Non-judgmental. That means mm. not overly harsh, but neither is it overly glorifying or validating. Sort of like you are, you know, there is a, I think there's been a tendency as we see people experience harshness, which is not okay, not in the eyes of God and not in our eyes to want to you know, embrace them and circle them with so much validation that we protect people. And there are good reasons for that. But from a mindfulness perspective, if you overly validate and overly kind of grasp onto something like, this is who I am and I'm great and I'm amazing, you cause the opposite kind of suffering from the pushing away. So they talk about craving and aversion. With aversion, you're, you're always pushing away things you don't like. Okay, the temperature in the car isn't quite right. I'm always changing. and um, I can't feel what I'm feeling. I'm always having to push away things that are hard. With craving, you're always grabbing on to things that you want and you like. Oh, this is the way I want things to be so that it always has to be this. And I'm nervous that they're going to change, right? So non-judgmental doesn't just mean what we think, like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to be mean to people in my thoughts. It means not being so controlling about our conclusions. Like, this is the way things, this can't be. That's a version. This can't be happening. I'm not okay with this. Craving is, this has to be this way. This is right, and they always have to be this way. Mindfulness says, okay, I'm feeling something that's painful. I don't like this, but I'm going to watch it. I'm going to notice it. I'm feeling something that's pleasant. Well, I do like this, but I'm going to notice and experience it. I'm not going to grab on to the pleasant and I'm not going to push away the unpleasant. It tries to avoid both of those. And I'd say the Americanized version has a tendency to try to use mindfulness to push away pain 
and to kind of reinforce what we think is good and true. Hmm. Like use mindfulness to then yep. say, well, I know this is who I am. So I'm going to use it to be accepting of myself and judge anybody who's not accepting me. And that's like, you know, so I think this will become more apparent as we talk about faith and mental health and relationships and sexuality. Yeah. I love that. And as you were saying this, I, I was thinking of the lyric from uh, the Beatles song across the universe where John Lennon sings over and over and over again, nothing's going to change my world. And I feel like that's a little too certain, right? Like that's, and maybe he was just trying to get a grasp on what mindfulness meant for him, but uh, we'll never know. But, but I feel like what you're describing is kind of like what Brene Brown said, which is the tendency is for us to make the uncertain certain for us to sort of like lock into our position, whether it's about how we see ourselves or see others and think that we're doing it in a mindful way because we're supposed to calm ourselves down with it. But the reality is, is that the peace comes from the curiosity. The peace comes from the openness. The peace comes from the non-judgment. Peace comes from just this, the stillness and the, less, the lack of reactivity. Yeah. Well said. I'm not making an anti-conviction argument. There's also right. this stream of thought that's like, the sin of certitude, you know, like as if anytime we're really convicted about something, we're, we're just arrogant. And I don't, I think that's another excess. Where like we're attacking <laughs> conviction. Right. I think what this says is whatever's coming up, the good, the bad, and the ugly, we hold it. Yeah. From our stance, you know, from our awareness, not pretending that we have a God's eye view. So the God's eye view has been used sometimes in scientific circles to like represent absolute, you know, this is clearly absolute truth and anybody who denies it's an idiot. There's an inherent humility to mindfulness that says, this is what I'm experiencing and it's awful or it's sweet or it's a little of both and it's here. And instead of just imposing a certain narrative on it without question, we're aware of the narrative that we're bringing to it. And if it's a narrative that we believe, like I'm a child of God, um, I believe that. I believe that about other people. We can still have a bit of humility about the majesty of the narrative. Like, what does that mean mm, yep. inside, right? And what does that mean about like the depths that we haven't plumbed? You know, John Kabat-Zinn, it's interesting. He's a Zen teacher. He's not theist. And when he talks about identity, he does so with this air of mystery like can you believe do you, do you really know who you are and then when you press him further i actually had breakfast with him once he says things like there are infinite resources inside you realize and he he's doing so not from a place of doctrine he's doing so because he sat with himself for long enough that he's saying do you even know what's inside you know <laughs> so direct experience has taught him it is just, it's so enormous. We can hardly fathom it. I'd love if we could talk about, I'm a child of God that way or identity that way, instead of, yeah, this is who I am. I'm, I'm a, a night person. I'm a red personality. I'm a jazz fan. You know, <laughs> this is my sexuality. And this is my, it's like, well, hold on now. What if our, as you pointed out with John Lennon, what if our identity is this constant unfolding process based on our choices moment by moment. I work with yeah. men every once in a while who struggle with pornography and 
it's an encouraging thing. I know you've done so much in this area, Jeff. It's an encouraging thing when they realize my future doesn't just have to be dictated by my past, but every moment I have another a little space right. to make a choice that's going to move me in a direction of who I am. And I may be in a place I don't want to be. And I, I may have a past that I'm, you know, there's been pain, but right now is a new moment. And it's that old Anne of Green Gables quote that my boys groan about when I quote, you know, like today is a, f- a fresh day without any mistakes. That really is what Jesus promises. That's my favorite representation of the gospel. It's like, Tomorrow doesn't have to be the same as today because of him. Like this moment can be fresh. And, and we're starting to get into a Christian view of mindfulness there. I'm sorry, I was blabbing on. You, you go. No, no, this is what I was hoping we would talk about. I want this to be hopeful. I want it. I really wanted this discussion. And again, I, I'm trying to be, I tried to structure this as loosely as possible because I just wanted to see where it would go because there are infinite, right, possibilities. There's infinite ways we could take this. But I really want for my audience to experience mindfulness and the way, the way I've learned from you and from Thomas McConkie and others just about this sort of curiosity and this, this openness. And, and that's like, I, I don't want to be dramatic about this, but practicing that and trying to embrace that has really been life-changing for me and my relationships with my wife, my children, my clients. And so I, I love the distinction of the kind of Americanized version versus what's really was intended and really trying to get back to that because I do agree that the Americanized version creates a lot of unnecessary suffering. And I think surprising ways that people are disappointed or maybe give up on it. And uh, that's sad to me. Let me ask you another question. And th- this is probably a, just a big general question, but I'm sure we'll get more specific. I'd love to hear your experiences with what you see happening for people when they do that when they get into that place you're describing, whether they struggle with an addiction, whether they struggle with a mental health issue, relationship challenges, faith issues, like what do you notice just sort of generally starts to shift for people when they're able to get into or practice it in this way? What a great question. It's a real delight to talk with you. I don't have these conversations all day. (laughs) So that's awesome. I'm going to try to answer this in two ways. Okay. The first way is like the way any mindfulness teacher might answer it. And then I'd like to say more, maybe more of a Christian version. So Great. what I would say in my secular mindfulness class is we tend to live so much in our heads, all of us, just like we're, you know, we're thinking, thinking, thinking compared to our ancestors who are like plowing fields. <laughs> we're like reading, writing, watching. We're in our heads, heads, heads. And some of this is just the blessing of kind of lies we're living, but it can be maddening when you lie down at night yeah. and you're exhausted. And we all know what this is like. You lie down and you just had an angry conversation or you just saw some nonsense on Facebook and your mind is just like churning, churning, churning. Well, that kind of churning happens with mental health problems, the rumination of depression, like just agonizing over the past or the rumination with anxiety about the future, right? Or in relationship problems where you're just, we all know what it's like to just stew over resentments in relation right. to our partner or in relation to the church. And I, I tend to think that our, the same kinds of metaphors like attachment injury that help us make sense of things in marriage relationships are the perfect metaphor 
use in relationship to the church. In other words, the same kind of kind of ruminations and frustrations towards the, our, in our relationship with the church or the gospel or the prophets, it can mirror what happens with a marriage or a friend. In all those cases, there is such a relief that happens when people learn that they can rest in a place beneath the thoughts mm. and they don't have to just live in their head. And it's not some, you know, mystical, you know, psychological trick. Right. It's right. a learnable practice that for thousands of years, human beings have been using in different traditions. This right. has happened within Christianity and within Eastern Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Learning how to shift out of just our heads more into our bodies, into our soul, into our spirit. And the way we would say it, mindfulness is shifting from your head to your body, really being embodied and noticing how our suffering decreases when we're not just driven by the often harsh, punitive kind of judgments in our head. My experience is mostly with depression. With depression, you often have like this propaganda of depression that just is resounding in your head. Yeah. And it can be like a torture chamber, mm -hmm. like literally just feeling tortured by your thoughts. Many of who are listening probably know what I'm talking about. So to be able to push back on your thoughts and relate to them more like the weather overhead, like passing clouds, which is sometimes pleasant and sometimes it can turn really kind of, oh, the storm's coming, right? I need to protect myself. I need to get inside. You can learn how to do that as a practice. It's learnable for everyone. This is not just for like Zen predisposed people. <laughs> you, you can learn this. It doesn't start by just practicing with thoughts. You have to start with the body and there's a process and there's online mindfulness-based stress reduction classes. And there's in-person ones. You can find these all over the place. It's literally taught in six different continents. That's the answer I would give in my mindfulness class. Shift out of your head into your body. But there's another layer to this that is also there in John Kabat-Zinn's writings. And I'm going to just paraphrase him if I could. Yeah. He says, there is a place beneath your thoughts and your feelings that if you drill down to find it and you learn to inhabit this place, and he calls it awareness, Christians might call it spirit. But if you learn to rest in this place deeper than thoughts, even deeper than feelings, and deeper than physical sensations, you learn something exciting. This place is not in pain, <laughs> like everything right, else. Right. So if you rest in an awareness of your sorrow, you learn for yourself that your awareness of your depression is not depressed. If you can learn to rest in an awareness of your anxiety, you will learn for yourself, not because I'm sermonizing about it. You'll learn for yourself that your awareness of anxiety is not anxious. Neither is your awareness of angry, resentful and angry. And your awareness of a craving like, oh, I'm feeling this craving. I just got to go look at something. If you can rest in an awareness of the craving and do what they call urge surfing, your awareness is not it's not grasping. So for spiritual folks, I like this metaphor, Jeff, because this can feel kind of fuzzy. 
we've all read near-death experiences Mm -hmm. and some people have done research on them consistently what people find in near-death experiences across many many stories is intense peace and joy when you leave your body you just feel this right yeah no, what if we could experience that without like dying <laughs> <laughs> or almost dying? Right. Exactly. Right. right. <laughs> That's what mindfulness offers. Honestly. Yeah. Like it's living out of our spirit and not just driven by our body mm. and being able to even feel anger and sorrow and anxiety passing through and not get so caught up in it. And even feel a craving come through for this thing to eat or that thing to watch and not be so driven and tossed downstream. There's a power to it and a peace and learning to rest in awareness or spirit. And I I find it comparable to that sort of peace that, that people feel automatically when they push away from their direct experience. This is a, in a little bit, we're pushing away from whatever's happening, not to the full extent of death, <laughs> we're kind of observing it and not taking it so personally. And it's not gripping us so much by the throat and things hurt less. And you start to tap into a piece if you drill down far enough. Yeah. That phrase rest in awareness, right? I think of the savior's invitation to rest in him and the word rest. I mean, I, I think about, and I do, I think about my ancestors who have passed on and the image in my mind is that they're at peace. They're resting. They're not battling. They're not reactive. I just have this sense that they're not in that place anymore. Even knowing some of their stories and how they struggled on earth, you know, it's, and so I, I love that idea that we can embrace that now. And there seems to be this progression that you're describing in mindfulness as a practice, which is our thoughts are probably first automatic, our feelings, right? That, That goes really fast. It's automatic in many cases. But then the narrative start, like you said, sort of the, the dialogue, the accuser, all the stuff starts to happen in our heads. The goal is to then transition it down into the body. I'm curious about that first step. And then obviously the third step, I'm not trying to oversimplify this, but for, you know, for instructional sake here, then it goes into this, like you said, beneath all of that, even deeper into awareness slash spirit, whatever we want to call it. But it seems like we have to pass through the body first, right? Like you can't, like there's something about the body that's very central in transitioning us from our heads into our awareness, into our spirits. Yeah. And compared to other Christian traditions, it's worth pointing out that our Latter-day Saint, many listeners I understand are Latter-day Saint, mm-hmm. but the tradition emphasizes the body is really central and not a bad thing, not a dirty thing, not mm-hmm. something we're trying to get rid of. Yeah, I love that. So mindfulness, the the body is the first foundation of mindfulness. We start there because it's concrete. It's really like tangible, whereas thoughts and feelings and all this. So let's work with the tabernacle we've been given. Maybe we can explore your question with a specific example of faith crisis. Sure. In, In my experience, many people who go through what we sometimes call faith crisis, they've encountered some new idea or possibility or, or um, some new understanding that's unsettling, an idea, a thought, uh, an experience, a story. Or maybe they've had an experience that's really unsettling. If we take for granted whatever we've heard as reality, 
Like we don't just tell stories, we live them. And so it, it will make sense if you've heard a, a story of great suspicion or resentment towards prophetic authority, or towards do, uh, sacred doctrines. If you take that as just reality, you're going to live it out. Just like if you take the propaganda of depression as reality, you're just going to live it out and say, I'm just this loser. So there's redemption. There's like liberation that comes in just pushing back on all thought. Like any thought that comes through is mental content. Hmm. What to make of it is your decision. You get to decide, is this true or not true? Is this worth something or not? Is this just nonsense? Like some of the dreams that come through? <laughs> like the fantasies, the this or that. And there's a liberation there because we have a choice in between stimulus and response is a space. And in that space, we have a choice. So I guess I would say, Jeff, that whether it's depression or faith crisis, just pushing back all the mental content, resting in our body, that becomes a gateway to our awareness because we just settle the breath or in the sensation of the body. And then because we're not in our heads, I'm not saying this well, but let me, let me just say, rather than just being aware of what's in our heads, our awareness comes to the body, which is a whole lot less exciting than whatever drama is playing out in our heads. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. When you're focused on the breath, there's only so much you're going to see, right? <laughs> Hard to argue with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you're, so, so it's on purpose, not as like glitzy, but that's such a relief. Because yeah. you're not going on these endless dramatic, you know, my partner, this, the church, that, I'm a loser. All these things that happen in our heads. It's like cutting through the drama and just saying, hold on, can I just feel my breath? Mm. Rising and falling. This breath of life that we've been given, right? This breath that's lent to us to live and move and have our being. So all of a sudden things start to calm down and you start to um, just settle and let your like this puppy dog, you're starting to train this puppy dog to be still. And my experience is that in that alone, I feel more proximity to who I really am. Okay. And to who God really is and what God feels towards me. Just cutting out the drama, all of a sudden, like I'm here and he's here, you know, and he calls himself the great I am, not the great I will be or I was, like he's here. At least the God that believers all over the world say this about God. They, you know, I find God here. And when my head's somewhere else, lost in the future, in the past, or in some story of someone online, you know, I have a, I have a hard time even connecting with my wife or my kids, let alone God. Yeah, so true. But if I can be here in my life, not in some celebrity's life, not in some politician's life, here, like feeling my body automatically, I just feel closer to everything good inside me, around me, above me. So I think that, that that's, that's like the first step, as you're saying, it's like just getting out of your head, getting into your body. And then maybe the, the next step is going back to John Lennon. He says, let it be. And so rather than trying to make everything different, rather than trying to control what's going on in our heads, and make our feelings the way we want, rather than making our partners the way that they're supposed to be, you know, and giving us what they're supposed to give us. If we stop all that, at least for now, just try it. Stop all the fixing and forcing and controlling 
and just allow things to be exactly as they are inside us and around us, including the people that drive us nuts. What if we could just allow them to be a human being and peel off our story that sort of says, this is how you're supposed to be as my child, you know, and how dare you disobey? (laughs) How dare you not do what I say you're supposed to do right now? And how dare you as my partner not fulfill all of my needs, all of my needs? You know, we, uh, when you start to peel back the stories, they're so oppressive. Some of them are downright totalitarian. Sometimes at my parenting stories, I'm like, wow, I'm sure glad God doesn't do that to me. You know, like it's, <laughs> I'm expecting so much. And that's where the real sweetness comes in. The last thing, Jeff, is there, there's this gentleness and this tenderness and this compassion that we can live in not by just looking in the mirror and doing self-affirmations, but we can find this right here in mm-hmm. our own spirit, in our own connection to God, getting out of our head, finding it. And I know that those who grow up with abusive homes, this is not as easy as I'm describing. It's different if you've been traumatized, if you've gone through betrayal. Yeah, It's more of a process, but it's still there to find. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, as I was listening to you, I was thinking, yeah, like, even for someone who's been betrayed, and a lot of my audience are folks that have, men and women, who have been betrayed by a loved one, where promises have been broken. But you said, e- even then, in our pain, our trauma, we can become so controlling as a way to find peace. And we can become the very thing that you know we don't even love or respect, and we can become so incongruent. And so I think this is a path back to congruency. It's a path back to truth. And I think, I know for myself, I will make way better decisions about what to do next, regardless of what has just happened around me, if I can stay in my body. And like you said, drill down kind of beneath all of that into my awareness, into my spirit. And I mean, it's, it's work, but it's, it's good work. And to me, it's less work than spending days, weeks, months, years, possibly rehashing, ruminating, dragging stuff back up. I mean, it, it is just a special kind of torture to just live like that. And I've been there. I've done that. Well said. Yeah. One of my teachers uses the word equanimity to describe what we're talking about. Mm. Um, and he defines equanimity as non-interference. Oh. Just as a practice, Yeah. can you experience something without like, you know, like just having to mess with it? <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? I'm using my hands on purpose. Like, oh, you know, I've got to like, okay, my my kids are making dinner and they're messing up. So I got to let go and, you know, fix everything and make sure they don't spill. Can we live life with a little less interference and more allowance of like exploring and experiencing? Now this starts to feel really un-American and even like un-Christian, you know, like, oh yeah, go getters. We're like conquer the West and Mm -hmm. go and, but I would, I would suggest John Kessler, referring to John Kessler, that there's a polarity here that, of course, it, the go-getter thing is great. We, some of you just finished watching the Olympics, you know, like working hard towards a goal. But if that's not restrained and balanced at all by this other practice, you said it perfectly, a special kind of torture. Our daughter has been experiencing seizures and like any parent in this mm. situation, like we started off just like, oh, I've got to do everything to make this go away until we wore, wore ourselves out. Oh, yeah. 
And even seeking faith can sometimes feel this way or seeking to heal a relationship, anything that's not right. You know, mindfulness is not about resigning ourselves to uh, an abusive situation, certainly not, or to, to depression and saying, well, it's just like it is what it is. Right. There's still desires for things to improve, but can we pursue that in a way that's a little bit more, I don't know, grounded, wise, skillful, not so relentless, not so exhausting. The word that comes to mind is striving. And I know in the gospel context that that's often a good word and there is a good way to do it. But there's another kind of striving that's like endless dissatisfaction. Yeah, I was just going to use that word. Yeah, it's anxious. Endlessly dissatisfied with our relationship. It's It's fearful. Never enough. And God is never enough. And I'm never enough. Versus another kind of striving where I love how President Hinckley used to say, try a little harder to do a little better. Yeah. You know, and President Nelson doing better and being better and repentance as a joyful daily practice. That is not an exhausting kind of striving. Mm -mm. That's a joyful message of, I can get on board with that. Yeah, (laughs) It's another day, fresh start, you know, it's Ebenezer Scrooge. It's like, awesome. I don't have to be beholden just by the past. That is a completely different thing. I, I wish we'd almost have different words for it, um, mm-hmm. but it's, it, it, we can find that. We can find that switch. And so all this can help our gospel living be more sweet, which is what we tried to write about in our books. Yeah. Well, I know we're needing to wrap up here, which naturally I wish we had all day to talk about this, but we'd probably wear people out. So we'll just, <laughs> we'll, We'll find a close a way to close this here, but I do want to talk about your book for a second because I I love your book by the way you co-authored it with some great people and it's called the Power of Stillness and uh, it's written for a Latter Day Saint audience but I found it to be something that would be very accessible and supportive to anyone who wants to learn mindfulness and I'm just curious with the book is it a good place to start for people in your in your opinion who are curious and want to start a mindfulness practice in the way way you're describing it here? Is that a good place to start for them? Or do you have a different place you'd point them? I think so. I mean, I hope so, especially if you believe in Jesus and you're trying to follow G- Jesus. Mindfulness, I apologize for some people outside. That's okay. I can go yell at them in my mindfulness voice. <laughs> That's right. Stop it! Can't you see I'm having a podcast here? Being yeah, compassionate. Look how calm I'm being, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like Christians, I think... You can sometimes hear mindfulness like this thing outside of our faith tradition. Yeah. And we're being invited to shave our heads and put on a toga and then like meditate instead of pray. And and we forget that Jesus nine different times in the New Testament, he just got away. Like John the Baptist dies. He gets away. He steps away right before the Sermon on the Mount. And you see this in the latest chosen episode. He gets away. So we hope that our book will leave people with feeling like if I want to be like Jesus, then I I need to learn how to be still. Yes. And not just how to be still like, Oh, I'll do it. I hate it. I'll turn, you know, but like communing, not just with God, but with yourself. President Monson speaks about communing with yourself and like, what can we find in stillness, in silence, in solitude? These are scary things for some people. I know lots of people that just always have a little noise on 
because it makes them nervous to be alone. And, 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 and sometimes trauma can be a part of that. But I would encourage anyone that's intrigued or even anyone that's suffering just to trust that there's something there in the silence for you. Mm-hmm. There's something in the stillness, even just shutting off this podcast and just sitting in your chair and bringing your attention to the breath, the rise and the fall, not even putting on some guided practice or this or that, which are good or which can be good. <laughs> and when you open your scriptures, instead of like, oh, I got to get to a chapter, just like feel the heft of the book and notice what it feels like to actually read a book, <laughs> let alone a holy book. Like letting your mind rest on words on a page rather than the. Yeah. Anyway, the whole book is an invitation to re-experience the gospel from this perspective rather than a whole checklist of stuff we got to get done. Yep. What if we could experience the discipleship of Jesus as an endless excuse to stop and pause and we pause to read and we kneel down, not just to fill the air with words, but to commune and to allow our minds to pause. And when we go to the temple, we go not just to get something done in the temple. We go to get away from all the doing and be there and actually end the Sabbath day. And the list goes on. You know? Yeah. Yeah. They're Date every, night. Right. Family every, home meeting. <laughs> <laughs> even like you said, even just time with our children, time with our loved ones, time with our food, even like the prayer or the, these rituals that we do. I've recently just started chewing my food more <laughs> just as a practice. And I'm amazed at how grounding and how powerful that is and how it feels going down my throat and into my stomach and just how it feels in my body, doubling, tripling the amount of times I chew something, something that simple. I'm just kind of experimenting with lots of different ways to be more, more <laughs> mindful and more present, more aware. And there's so many physical things we can do this with. And like you said, spiritual practices that are already built into our culture and our, our routines. Yeah. And even and, just and, being with our loved ones. Yeah. And could I add another word? You said more aware. Can we just say more alive? Mm. Yeah, like, let's say the that. Fact that you're, the fact that you're chewing your food to me, like versus what do we usually do? You know, like we're shoving it in oh, yeah. and we're reading the text. Totally. And, like, and again, going back to some Christian teaching, Christians believe that when you die, your body and your spirit are separated, right? So I run into people all the time, including the person that I look at in the mirror, who's like, not really here. (laughs) (laughs) My my mind, I'm in the shower. John jokes about you're in the shower, but you're really at work in a meeting. In fact, the whole meeting is is with you in the shower. You know, like we're two places. And so you can think about this as synchronizing the body and mind so that we are more alive and like literally bringing our body and spirit into more of a union rather than walking around like zombies, like try walking somewhere and just feeling your feet on the ground. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, it's really easy to pull up and, you know, catch up on the latest and we have to, so this is a nice counterbalance to everything that's driving us crazy in modern life. (laughs) It's like brushing your teeth. It's like, Oh boy you don't brush your teeth, you're going to have some issues. And boy, if we don't have a relationship, if we can't stop, all the relentless doing starts to drive us crazy. All right. Okay. I know we need to stop. This is fantastic. Promise me we can talk again sometime, Jeff. I I promise you. Yeah. I think my listeners will also ask me to (laughs) have another conversation with you because I just love 
I love your take on, I mean, just the things I've read, the, the interactions we've had. I just love the way that you, again, you approach things. You just are aware and alive and mindful and I, you live this and it's, it's just been such a blessing to me. So thank you for, for who you are, what you're sharing, what you're choosing every day to bring this. And I'll put links to, you know, your, your body of work and websites and things you're working on so people can spend more time with you. But thank you so much for, for being here. Anything else you want to say in conclusion? No, the pleasure is mine. I just want to say, if you feel estranged from something you used to love, whether that's your partner or your faith or even God, let yourself flirt with this a little bit. Rather than just concluding that, well, this is the way things are now, and this person is the way this person is, and the church is the way it is, attachment injuries can heal, and estrangements can turn into reconciliation. And that is the beauty of, it's one of the beauties of Jesus's message. I think he brings us all from a place of estrangement towards what is good and beautiful back to intimacy Yes, for all of us. And in some sense, we've all been betrayed by something. So I, I hope those who have experienced brutal betrayals will feel more communion and empathy from, you know, in this body of believers and, and even outside of the church that we can walk this path together. I'm, I love your work. I will do anything to support what you're doing. And thanks for having me on. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Jacob and the great work that he's doing, You can find him at his website, unthinkable.cc. I'll put links to that in the show notes, as well as his email address and links to his books, articles, and other things that he's created. He's got a great body of work. And like I said, he's had a huge impact on my thinking, and I'm sure he'll be able to support you with your questions and challenges that you might have as well. And uh, just really hope you enjoyed this interview. And I look forward to having him back on the podcast. And if you have any questions or topics or things you'd like for me to cover with Jacob as I think about bringing him back on in the future, shoot me a note. Let me know. I'd love to share some feedback with him and we can come up with a topic that helps you with your situation. So be glad to collaborate with you. And as always, you can find more resources on my website, fromcrisistoconnection.com, online courses, past episodes of this podcast, my weekly relationship column that I do every single week. And I also, as part of my course, do a monthly live question and answer where people can jump on and ask questions about relationships and building trust. And you can find all that on my website. Thanks again for being here. Love connecting with you every single week. And I'll catch you guys in the next episode. Mm